Hello, everyone, and welcome to iGaming Next Weekly News Live. Uh, Connor, the chat is popping off already. It's going to be a, it's going to be a great show. Absolutely. Look at this, Bogdan, Caillou, Carlos, Reveler Pale. How are you, everybody? Welcome to the chat. Thanks for getting things off to a lively start. How are you doing, Jake? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad, thank you. Thanks for joining us, like Connor said. Um, although Bogdan, I must say, there's no summer uh, in Manchester this year. It's rained every single day in July, so um, I could do with some of that European European heat, I think. Yes, luckily for me, I live in the tropical paradise of London, as you can see. The uh, palm trees nicely illuminated out the front there. So uh, unlucky for you, Jake. But uh, as Morrissey used to inform us, yes, it's always raining in Manchester. Yeah, I asked for this, didn't I, when I moved up north? Um, now, you may have noticed that uh, Mr. Nico is not with us again this week for the second week in a row. And I don't know about you, Connor, but I think we're going to need to introduce a, a three strikes and out policy, personally. Yeah, I think you've got to roll with the punches in this industry, Jake, though. And uh, quite frankly, you know, at least we'll be able to get a word in edgewise today. Um, <laughs> Nico not being present, but we will miss his dulcet tones, of course. Nobody can uh, present the news quite like Nico can, but uh, we look forward to having him back hopefully next week. That's right. We need some of his uh, infectious enthusiasm back on the uh, back on the pod. And obviously that means no 10 and 5. So I'm sorry if you were tuning in for that. Uh, Katie, I might as well at you as it's your, uh, your favourite feature by far. Um, you may have noticed also there was a an advert at the beginning of this for our New York show next year. Um, and I would encourage you to pre-register for that because tickets go on sale in August. So don't miss out. Um, it was a hell of a show last year and we're planning to make it even bigger and better this year. Uh, before we dive in, Connor, I want to say a quick thank you as well to our sponsors, Playson, Interactive and Hub88. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. And this week... There's not really any deep dive on one topic or any special guest. We are kicking it old school, Connor, aren't we? By basically running around, running around the headlines of, of the week, the biggest news stories. We are, but it's there's a bit of a theme, if I may say. We've got a bit of a UK special this week, I would say. Our home market, a market very close to our hearts. Uh, there's been some pretty big headlines here in Britain this week. Uh, so lots to discuss. I believe, if we're ready to dive into our first topic, starting with one of our biggest gambling firms, Entine, and their latest move. Jake, what have yeah. you for us? I'll intro this one, shall I? Um, I think Sonia wrote this one for us. But basically, Entain uh, has been flexing its M&A muscles again and has bought quite a sought-after business in Angstrom Sports, which is a kind of pricing and analytics trading firm um, that is all the rage right now because basically they can help Entain with their, with their same-game parlays in the US. Uh, and as we know, that's where the money is. Um before we go any further, Connor, I just want to shout out Business Insider because they actually they reported this in uh, was it May or March? I think it was. Uh, yeah, back in May, um, so a good few months ago now, and they even got the price pretty much bang on because they said yeah. two hundred million, and uh, I think this deal was agreed for an upfront payment of eighty one million, along with contingent payments over the next three years of one hundred and twenty two million, and combined that's two hundred and four. So. Fair play. Their sources were definitely Quick, no. in the know in that regard. Quick fact check. Firstly, 81 plus 122 is 203. 
And secondly, <laughs> I think I think um, Insider originally said this was going to be two hundred million dollars. In fact, it's more like two hundred million pounds, which is something like two hundred and sixty or seventy million. Okay, right, you are. Let's not give too much credit. <laughs> okay, yeah. Sort, sort yourselves out, business inside. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty much on the money. I shouldn't criticise them, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, we've opened talking about price, and some people have said, or suggested at least, that this is an expensive asking price for a business considering its revenues. Um, so, Connor, let's bring you in uh, to talk a little bit about what you make of the price and also sort of the rationale for, for Entain and why they've, why they've done this deal. Yes, because it's always interesting to hear me do maths live on camera, isn't it? <laughs> I know that that's everyone's favourite segment. Um, so, yeah, precisely. A few people have mentioned that the price seems a little bit high. I had one commentator on Twitter said rather emphatically, excited to see the trading margin remain exactly the same, 200 million well spent. Uh, <laughs> this is a bit of a negative view. Uh, he added, uh, FYI to US sports betting operations, spending 200 million on trading technology will not help trading margins if the people on the tools still have no idea what they are doing. Not sure exactly what he's referring to there. I don't know what the trading officers look like at uh, BetMGM or any other US bookies. Um, but obviously, as it's a bit more of a nascent market over there than it is here in the UK, we can imagine that the trading teams don't have precisely the same experience as they have here anyway. Was this guy a better or an investor or was he somebody that works in the industry? Uh, his tag on Twitter, his handle is SprotsBetter. So I think he's a better um, with poor spelling, but that's fine. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, uh, Entain said the acquisition will deliver margin enhancement over the long term. And I think that's the key thing to consider here, obviously. I think the price um, is based on that and based on the benefits that it can bring to Entain, specifically to BetMGM, because it is US-focused. Um, and not based on um, how much revenue that company can generate, not least because it's a B2B company. Entain has brought the solution in-house with a view to using it to integrate into its own tech stack, not to offer it out to other operators as a B2B solution. So the revenue is sort of irrelevant in that respect. Um but yes, I did have a look at the numbers just to work out how long it's going to take Entain to, to, to make back the 200 million investment on this particular product. Um, and I had to do a bit of maths to get there. Had to make a few assumptions and do some kind of broad strokes maths because I was diving into Entain's and MGM's financial reports. And for BetMGM so far, they haven't listed the margin rates across the US, they don't break down the revenue into sports betting and iGaming. So it's all a bit difficult to work out. Mm. What we do know is that BetMGM generated net gaming revenue of $1.44 billion in 2022. So we know that for a fact. Um, they don't publish their margins, but you can go to certain regulators like the New York Gaming Commission, State Gaming Commission, and you'll be able to work out the margin for yourself because you can see how much is handled 
in wages and how much revenue that generates. So I did some maths over the last six months and got an average sports betting margin in New York for BetMGM of 7.6%. I know you said you weren't very good at maths, but it really took you six months. No, it didn't take me six (laughs) months straight. It took me five minutes. Very good. uh, Thank you for that interjection. (laughs) Sorry. Um, So basically, the New York margin is about 7.6% over the last six months. Um, that's got quite a lot of variance in it. Some some months are over nine percent, some months are under six. It's like nine and a half, five and a half, seven point nine, seven, five point nine, eight point one. So it's, it kind of floats a bit, but I think seven point six percent is not a bad assumption. I think seven or eight percent tends to be the prevailing sort of margin. Um, so that suggests again, it's not divided into iGaming and sports betting, but let's say that was all when in New York it is all sports betting revenue. So let's assume that nationally, BetMGM's got all sports betting revenue of 1.44 billion at 7.6% margin. That suggests a handle of about 19 billion dollars in 2022. We're talking broad strokes here. So what would be the difference if they're able to improve that margin by certain amounts? Basically, if they can use Angstrom Sports to get that 7.6% margin to a 10% margin, that would deliver. That would have delivered an extra five hundred million dollars in revenue last year. You know, if they could get to the twelve point nine percent margin that Entine has on online sports betting globally, then uh, U.S. operations would deliver an extra billion dollars every year. Um, so basically, every 0.1% that they can improve, well, not put one percentage point that they can improve their margin by will deliver an extra sort of 19, 20 million dollars annually. So every full percentage point they can add on is going to add nearly 200 million dollars to Entine to BetMGM's bottom line. So, all this to say essentially that the, the value of this acquisition, if you have scale like Entine has. Uh, the value lies in the fact that you can you can use tech like this to make very small improvements at the margin level, which will translate into quite massive impacts on the bottom line. So if we talk about two hundred million pounds, yes, it's a lot of money, but how much would Entine actually have to improve that margin by in order to make that money back very quickly? Well, actually, not very much. So these incremental differences. Um, can uh, can add up to a, a massive impact for the business. So that's my take. Awesome. Fantastic research, Connor. Thank you. Um, beautifully presented as well, I must say. Um, and and you're right as well, because obviously these, you know, they're part of the reason they've bought the, the company is because it specializes in in sort of same game parlay trading um, software. And that's, yeah. as we know, the sort of highest margin um, bets that you can place on a US sportsbook at the moment. That's, they're the ones that operators want to, want to push on their consumers um and i want to bring in our friends at islas and crycheck gaming here um who have put out a newsletter on this earlier today and they've said that uh parlays regularly account for between 55 and 60 percent of revenues in states that report parlay mix so that's the sort of uh mix we're looking at here um and they said in an ideal world books want to price everything on site whether it be player props live lines pre-game all from a single source so basically any of those bets can then be combined into a into a same game parlay 
um, which obviously isn't as easy if you're taking data and maths and everything else from a variety of different sources. Um, so that might explain, uh, yeah, more rationale behind the purchase, really. And um, I know we said it was expensive, but they point out that PointsBet bought Banak, the Irish trading company, which did a similar job, is focused on you know pricing and trading technologies for two years ago, and that cost them $43 million. And obviously, more recently, we've seen points. Uh, we've seen fanatics buy points bet for two hundred and twenty-five million. You know, and a major part of that deal was because they could gain access to that Bannock trading technology. So, Entain aren't the only you know big operator in U.S. sports betting that is uh, that is on on the on the lookout for these companies. Um, and I guess people will be looking around in the market, wondering who else there is to 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 acquire in this space. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's, again, one of the things that we mustn't forget when it comes to acquisitions like these. The value is not only bringing that technology in-house, you're also depriving the rest of the market of that technology. So if you think it's a, a USP or a value driver, then, you know, you get to uh, stop, kind of bring down, stop the rivals from getting it. Yeah. And just on that note about rivals and what you mentioned about same game parlays, I think it's... Uh, fairly well established that FanDuel as the market leader in sports betting nationally in the US is the kind of it has been spearheading this uh, accumulator same game parlay strategy for a couple of years now and they were kind of first out with that kind of product offering and that's obviously had a massive impact on their business and that is probably the reason that they can quite realistically target a 12% margin on sportsbook compared to BetMGM's we're estimating say seven or eight percent mm-hmm. um, um so yeah i was just gonna say you can scan the uh qr code in the uh in the top left corner if our viewers want to read all the details of this story um but yeah. i think one really interesting element we've maybe missed out on so far is again this dynamic between entain and, and mgm resorts mm-hmm. they're obviously joint venture partners in bet mgm which is the u.s sports betting brand of both companies and um you know something has to give in that relationship eventually and i think we're seeing both companies acquire things that will basically give them a better standing in those negotiations right because as we know bet mgm the technology primarily at the moment is is with entain so if mgm mm-hmm. wanted to keep that brand they would either have to buy that off of entain at a premium and presumably Angstrom along with that now. Um, whereas we've also seen MGM kind of hedging its bets a little bit in, in case it needs to go go its own way in the future by buying uh, Leo Vegas, you know, which has its own proprietary technology in, in the casino side of things. So it's like any news that happens between these two companies, there are going to be after effects for, for, that, for that joint venture and, and how it eventually gets decided um yeah 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 it's always a consideration there in the background there's there's always some you know we get this impression that there's some kind of underlying impact in terms of how that relationship works i know it's been a little bit it's been discussed at length um over the past few years yeah. about how and we've seen um we've seen mgm come in to try and buy and tain, haven't we and and that was rejected. And I think part of Entain's thinking since then has been, 
we're going to go heavy on M and A, and we're going to get even bigger, so that companies can't come in and and buy us. You know, we want to be the buying company, and I think you've you've spent a bit of time this morning thinking about Entame's wider M and A strategy as well, Connor, and and sort of where this Angstrom purchase fits in with that. Yeah, I think it shows the um, the kind of breadth of Entain's perspective when it comes to you know assessing companies for acquisition. I think it's it was only a few weeks ago we were on here discussing the acquisition of STS in Poland um, and how that fits in with Entain's local hero strategy uh, of kind of buying up these local hero brands. You know, like STS in Poland, like Bet City in the Netherlands, um, and kind of you know you're, you're picking up a business with an established um, customer base and established revenues and all the rest of it that that Entain can then bolster and support and strengthen and continue to grow those brands. I think on the other side of Entain's acquisition strategy, you have deals like the one we're discussing today, which is a deal that improves Entain's core technology stack, improves its ability to, um, you know, continue developing its own products. And I think that both sides of that <clears throat> strategy are really important for Entain. It is, a, is a, in some sense, it's a demonstration of a, a build and buy strategy. You know, Definitely, yes, yeah. it's, bought, it's bought Angstrom, but the point is to build, use that to build its own, technology stack um if you if you then, think you can go into a you know a country and buy a local hero that's already number one in the market and then you can add these superior trading tools and everything else when, when the integrate the tech integration is underway uh they're just going to go from strength to strength really aren't they yeah absolutely and i think that as another point of comparison that you have you have the angstrom deal on the technology side the uh, Bet City and STS deals on the local hero brand buying side. And then somewhere in the middle, you've got another recent Entain acquisition, which was 365 scores. And I think that acquisition spoke to both of those strategies in a way, because um, obviously they're getting a great deal of data and analytics through that um, acquisition, which they can use to bolster their existing products and so on. But they've also... Um, bought an existing engaged customer base which okay they're not exactly sports betting customers but there's a high going to be a high incidence of crossover of people who can be cross sold into sports betting so they've bought you know both the brand which is a, a hero brand in some sense to sports fans they've bought that user base and they've also got the technological and data impact of of having access to all that so that's sort of a deal that was somewhere in the middle, but I think it just illustrates quite nicely the, the breadth of Entain's purview when it comes to acquiring businesses. Pretty interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. All about scale at the end of the day. Um, and I think Entain are somewhat related to our second major story this week as well. Or should I say uh, GVC, as they were known then. Um, I'm sure you're probably all aware of this by now if you're tuning in. Um, but 888 has basically had to terminate its discussions with FS Gaming, which was an investment vehicle consisting of some pretty big executives that used to run GVC Holdings before it transformed into Entain. 
Uh, one of them was Kenny Alexander, who was the old CEO of GBC. And as it turns out, these discussions between FS Gaming and 888 were designed to basically put Kenny Alexander back in a chief executive position at 888, which, as we know, is uh, is without sort of permanent leadership at the moment. We had an inkling that that would be happening already, didn't we, Connor? Because the news came earlier this month that they'd built up a kind of 6.6% shareholding and were gaining momentum in the business. Um, But the reason it's transpired so dramatically is because 888 has basically had to cut cut those discussions off entirely um, because really it was concerned that it it would have its license to operate in the UK revoked. Um, do you want to explain a little bit as to how that scenario unfolded and why why that was a major concern for AA8? Yes, it would be my pleasure. And this is a topic that I know intimately. <laughs> so the, uh, what happened was, as I understand it, there's a rule in, in, in UK gambling regulations that if a change of corporate control takes place within a within a licensed gambling business, uh, the UKGC, the Gambling Commission, must approve any changes. Must, must Basically, they must approve that change in corporate control. So it has to have oversight, basically, of who's running these businesses, as you would expect. Yes. Why, um, why, would they, why would they have had an issue with, with Kenny and, and company taking over? Why, what's, their, what's the problem there? Oh, uh, well, as we know... <laughs> Not long ago, uh, HMRC, the UK's tax agency, revealed that it had initiated an investigation into the then called GVC Holdings uh, activities in Turkey. And there were some pretty serious suggestions uh, of what might come out of that story, including breaches of the Bribery Act. So some, you know, that is kind of high-level criminal activity, it sounds like. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm just saying bribery doesn't sound good. Um, And Entain has already said that it's expecting a significant financial penalty, and I think people, analysts, have estimated that to be in the hundreds of millions. So, obviously, there's a bit of concern there over the uh, past behaviours of the likes of Kenny Alexander and some of these other... um, executives who were at GVC Holdings at that time. Anyway, so that's ongoing. um, That's why uh, I think it was of particular interest to the Gambling Commission um, because they, behind the scenes, have been in discussions with HMRC and are obviously following this historical case closely. Um, reading Reading between the lines... Potentially, they know more than we do in terms of who's actually caught up in this in this case, um, and whether that might have had an impact on their role in sanctioning this change in corporate control. Um, it looks like you know, AAA basically couldn't afford to take the risk by letting those guys build up more than ten percent uh, shareholding. I think they were working along with another investment vehicle to try and build that up. Um, and the Gambling Commission basically warned them and said, you know, we have serious concerns here. Uh, yeah. And in in opening the book publicly like they have, AA8 went back to FS Gaming and, and Kenny and his old colleagues and basically said, we need guarantees from you. 
um, because the Gambling Commission is worried about this. And those guarantees weren't forthcoming. Um, unfortunately for 888, the damage was sort of already done to agree by that point because the Gambling Commission had determined that they needed to open a, a new license review into the company. Um, and <laughs> the other funny part of this is obviously the reaction of investors because Kenny, you know, it was a different industry back then. And f for all his faults, if there are any, he was an incredibly canny operator and basically GVC went from strength to strength under his leadership and investors in 888 were kind of rubbing their hands together thinking, oh yes, you know, this could be us. This is the guy to get William Hill back in the, uh, back in the top tier in the UK. Uh, and the share price sort of soared accordingly, didn't it? When, when that investment was first built up, but then by announcing yeah. that actually they've had to, they've had to cancel these talks over regulatory concerns the share price went right back down again by I think about 23% on the news. Uh, and we've got a funny, a funny tweet here from Alan Bowden, who we like to quote fairly regularly on the podcast, uh, who says the company could or maybe would have lost its UK license if he'd become the CEO. And the market didn't like that not happening. The gambling stock market is one of the most consistently disconnected from reality markets that exists maybe second only to US politics on Betfair. But even with that tweet, I think you can see there from the share price graph just how drastic a, a change this news had uh, on, on the 888 stock. Yeah, let me point out, Jake, that things have bounced back quite significantly since then. So that was at 82 pence a share that Alan showed it. It's now at 100 pence a share. And before, I mean, even before Kenny was mentioned, and before this, uh, you know, this 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 kind of proposition started coming into the public eye, so shares were seventy pence before Kenny was uh, before FS Gaming stormed onto the scene, and they quickly went up all the way to one hundred and twenty three pence. So that's like a nearly a hundred percent increase in the space of ten days. I mean, when Alan talks about disconnected from reality, yeah, these shares are wild. Um, but they're now they're now at just over 100 pence, so still nearly 50 percent ahead of where they were at the beginning of June before this um, shareholding was announced. So I will say that I think obviously the market's really struggling to price this one. Um, but yes, just thought I would mention that that it has bounced back a bit. Yeah, I think that's fair. And the executive chair of 888, Lord Mendelssohn, who's kind of you know having to steer the ship, he tried to put a you know a bright a bright outlook on this by suggesting that they're fairly close to uh to appointing a new ceo although you know you have to you have to doubt that slightly if they were sort of hanging their hat on on kenny coming back in um but if and when that person is appointed you would hope that can bring some some security to the uh to the company and a bit of stability as well yeah, I think we can't obviously see the internal goings on. Perhaps, um, you know, perhaps Triple H's board knew about uh, FS Gaming and the intentions there long before any of us did. You have to assume that they probably did. Um, and they may have been waiting to see what transpired there. But, um, yes, I'm sure they had a plan B in place. I think we're all interested to see who... Uh, who eventually does step into this role? Is it going to be 
someone like Kenny, who used to run a big firm and now has, uh, you know, decided to do something else? Or is it going to be someone outside the industry, someone totally new? Maybe it's um, uh, maybe it's Nico, and he's actually at the job interview today. Last week was first stage, today's second stage. <laughs> yeah, it could well be. It could well be. I think, uh, yeah, I'd fear for them if that was the case, I think. <laughs> he won't thank me for that. Right, moving from one uh, big UK operator to another. Um, again, unfortunately, in the news for negative reasons this week, uh, and that is Betfred. Uh, who have been hit with a just over three million pound regula- regulatory settlement from the Gambling Commission for anti-money laundering and social responsibility failings as it continues its clampdown. Um, Connor, you wrote this story. Do you want to highlight some of the key talking points in it for our re- for our viewers today? Yes, I'll, I'm quite happy to throw out a few big shocking figures, just like the Gambling Commission likes to. Um, so between it was it was based on activities between January 2021 December 2022 so about a two year period um, and the gambling commission found insufficient controls in place to protect new customers monitor high velocity spend and duration of play um, so we, there wasn't enough safer gambling interaction responsible gambling interaction with big spenders. Um, and there were also AML failures and f- uh, uh, the, the brand failing to track. Oh, it seems like, sorry, I think I've got a bit of technical uh, apologies if I'm going slow. I'll keep going. You just stop me if. Uh, you you if, sound if, okay to me, mate. Okay. Um, so, yes, AML, there was some poor record keeping, um, several customers losing tens of thousands without having any kind of enhanced affordability checks or AML checks taking place. So just to give you a few of those examples, there was uh, a customer who staked more than half a million pounds in two months, uh, and Betfred failed to carry out any safer gambling interactions with that customer. Um, Another customer lost £61,000 in four months, one lost £72,000 in nine months, one lost... Uh, 120,000 over 11 months, and they all took place without enhanced AML checks, which is really not good. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's not, uh, it's not, it's not, it's nothing new, really. Yeah, it's nothing new. There's loads of, well, uh, the, you know, there is, there is one, one new element to the story, you could argue, uh, and that's the, um, the 500,000 pounds that you're talking about that was allowed to be staked in two months. and this was a really interesting element for me because unlike a lot of historical cases we've seen where, you know, bettors are spending way beyond their means and are having to, you know, we've seen the newspaper headlines, you know, steal from their employers, that sort of thing to fund these types of habits. This was actually a professional uh, gambler who was a a poker player. Um, And it's raised some interesting debate, particularly on Twitter amongst the betting community about, because, well, basically, because this was bet, uh, this was Betfred's argument um, back at the regulator was that they didn't think the customer was at harm because they were a winning customer, and I think mm-hmm. they were actually up by about eight and a half thousand um, at this point. But the, I guess the fact remains, it's you know it's not the job of safer gambling or compliance teams to try and determine which customers are profitable and which ones are, are losers. Like the whole point of 
these enhanced safer gambling measures is that they set off triggers right at any rates and whether you're winning or whether you're losing staking like you say half a million pounds in two months should be a red flag um regardless of kind of personal wealth you would argue um and that was one of the points some people made on twitter was that or i think it was in the commission's ruling that this was close to the individual's net worth um and if that is the case, then that is a responsible gambling trigger, regardless of whether they're prof- profitable or not anyway, because it implies that they're spending, you know, every penny they have to a degree. Yeah, I, I, so the <clears throat> the criticism from the Gambling Commission was that, that, was that Betfred made assumptions that customers were not at risk because they were winning customers, which is... Uh, not really how, as you say, not really how the system's supposed to work. It's It should be thresholds that are triggered by certain levels of spend. On the other hand, um, there was some commentary from Melanie Ellis at Northridge Law, who often offers up some really interesting uh, insight and uh, analysis into these cases on LinkedIn. And Melanie said... Uh, I'm sure that I'm sure the Gambling Commission appreciates that a person's total gambling stakes will typically be much higher than their total outlay, particularly in a game like poker. Well, sounds obvious when you put it like that, Melanie. So it's not entirely clear why the relationship between this customer's stakes and their net worth was a relevant relevant consideration mm. here, particularly given there was presumably decent evidence that they were a professional poker player. So I think that's a fair criticism that actually, of course, if you bet five, if, you know, you might bet a thousand pounds in a poker game and come away 10 pounds up or 10 pounds down. And just because you've staked a thousand pounds doesn't mean that you were, uh, you know, in danger of losing it all. But uh, the the harshest criticism that came from Melanie, I think, was this. She said the Gambling Commission has not provided any helpful guidance in this statement, merely stating that the player should have been subject of safer gambling considerations. If the Gambling Commission wants to improve operator practices, it needs to set out what exactly Betfred should have done differently in this scenario. And I think that's a fair criticism because... We, because otherwise we, you just get speculation on social networks and people basically guessing about what's gone on. Yeah, and also it, it, it's hard to find the consistency between the levels of spend that we're talking about and the um, penalties that are issued as a result of that. You know, I think that the, the Gambling Commission is a little bit cagey on that at times, that they're the information's not always super clear. Um, and obviously, we know every time they put out one of these press releases on on the latest settlement or fine or whatever it might be, they're always remindful to, to other operators that, guys, you need to pay attention to this. Look what we're doing to people if they don't comply with regulations. So, And I think Melanie makes a fair point there. It's like if you want to make an example of people that other operators can follow... Um, then some more specific, more direct, actionable advice might be useful. Yeah. And she, yeah, like you say, she's worth a, a connect on LinkedIn. I think if you want to follow along with her regulatory commentary, she does some stuff on marketing as well, doesn't she, when the ASA um, stamps yeah. down rulings in our sector. So, yep, yeah, follow our advice or don't. Um, I think 
we're running on 40 minutes now, Connor. Do you want to call it there or should, do you want to do the loot box story quickly? Um, well, we can say quickly, can't we? The UK. <laughs> UK Interactive Entertainment, which is a trade association in the video gaming industry, has introduced a new set of guidelines around loot boxes, um, which obviously is fantastically interesting to, to you and me. We're always playing on our Nintendos, aren't we, Jake? Uh, buying loot boxes and the like. So this is obviously a thrilling story for us. I mean, you uh, say that. I mean, not me anymore, but probably 10 years ago, I was uh, I was buying loot boxes left, right and centre on, on the FIFA, uh, FIFA video game. Because um, you basically get player packs and it's like top trumps, right? And you build your squad with players you're randomly assigned out of these packs and like for me that was a more a more addictive um a more addictive technology than than gambling was even um i wasn't addicted myself but i could very easily see why people could could get swept along in it because it's that whole thing of like virtual currency right it, it doesn't really yeah. feel like you're spending real money um and you're not getting anything real in return for it either so it's, it's kind of separate almost to to what's in your bank account or whatever that's it that's the problem and that's part of what the discussion around this has been as this our oh, loot boxes gambling discussion has been going on for so long now and i th think uh <clears throat> if you remove the kind of unlicensed these skin betting exchange things where where actually some of these items can be exchanged for real money i think my fundamental view on it was that it's not really gambling because you can't win anything of any value. So you, you, you've, you've got no chance of getting your money back. You're buying something. That makes it worse, but, though, surely. Not better. Well, no, but it makes it not gambling. That's the thing. Yeah, I guess so gambling is the, is the random... The random if, you can't, if you can't win back more money than what you're staking, then, then it's not gambling. It's buying a mystery product. Which I mean, you can do the same thing with holidays. You can but you can book holidays blind, and you get a discount because you're not choosing your hotel, and they reveal to you on the last day which hotel you're going to. You can't call that gambling just because there's an uncertainty around the product. Anyway, that's another discussion. Point is, we've got eleven new principles now, which are designed uh, quite specifically to protect um, under 18s, but also to protect consumers consumers more generally. Um, so if I can give you a very quick rundown and then I think we'll go and have some lunch or a pina colada, uh, basically they want to make available technical controls to restrict under 18s from buying loot boxes, drive awareness and uptake of those controls, form an expert panel on age assurance in the games industry, whatever that means, disclose the presence of loot boxes in games prior to downloading them so parents can find out if they've got loot boxes in before their children have access uh, they will need to give clear probability disclosures which is in line with sort of declaring your rtp on a slot game uh, design and present loot boxes in a way that's easily understandable and promotes fair and responsible play Continue, continue to tackle the unauthorized external sale of items acquired from loot boxes for real money. So what I was referring to before. Commit to lenient refund policies for when uh, little Johnny gets hold of uh, mummy's phone and uses her credit card details without her knowledge. 
Um, advanced protections for all players by engaging with third-party organisations and work with the government. So basically, we'll probably see a few changes coming up pretty soon in terms of basically I think the fundamental thing here is transparency around what you're actually buying when you buy a loot box. They're going to have to disclose a bit more information. They're going to have to make it easier for parents to uh, prevent their children from accessing loot boxes. Um, and so they're being treated a little bit more carefully and a bit more seriously than they would otherwise. Still not regulated as gambling, because mm -hmm. they're not, but... Um, you know, yeah. getting a bit stricter. And I think so ga was... games developers have kind of felt the tide turning in this direction for a little while now, really. I remember just after yeah. I stopped playing video games, um, I think FIFA did a thing where, like, the cheapest loot box you could buy, they would let you preview it so you could see the contents of it and then you could decide whether it was worth purchasing. But obviously the really expensive ones were still completely random. You didn't know what you were going to um... get. So they've kind of been doing things here and there. And I think it's worth pointing out as well, the UK is not the only country to, to clamp down on this. I think there's a lot of stricter laws that have come into force in Belgium and Holland, uh, in the Netherlands, sorry, and, and other places in Europe. Um, yeah, I think Spain as well has been pretty pretty strict on them. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right in that it, the, the sort of key here is the, is the protection of, of under-18s and... Uh, not being able to buy them without the consent of a parent or guardian, I think is yeah. a really good, a really good start for this framework. Um, so yeah, one to keep an eye on. Yeah. I also think like it's a move back in the right direction for the video game companies. It's not a topic I engage with particularly because I don't play video games anymore because I'm an adult, but I used to play them a lot. And it used to be that you spent 40 quid on the latest title exactly. and then that yeah, and you got your you know, you get 40, as much 40 money quid a year and that was that was all the investment. And now it's like, you know, everything's pay to play, it's all about these microtransactions, and I do think it's a little bit like unfair to your customer base to be trying to rinse them like that. I think it's a little bit out of order. And I think a lot of video gamers probably feel the same way. Um and video games have been like charging towards that new business Definitely. model now for a long time of like little, little, oh, buy this little extra, little yeah. extra, little extra here and there. And before you know it, you might have spent hundreds of pounds on a single game or more. Yeah. Um, pay pay, pay to win, they're calling it on the, on the Reddit forums, I think, kind of. Um, yeah. But to su such a degree, obviously, like that the developers are actually not even charging for their games anymore. If you think about Call of Duty and stuff, you know, like we said, 50 quid for a game for a year you were sorted now they now they've foregone that purchase price because they know they can charge hundreds thousands of pounds per user um yeah to to basically buy progress throughout the game and uh yeah that does need addressing i think because it's very easily it very easily spirals out of control yes bring back chess <laughs> chess yeah exactly a nice harmless like game for chess. everyone very sophisticated yes Okay, I think that brings us to the end of our roundup for this week. Um, thank you for sticking with us, and thank you uh, to everyone that's commented in the chat, uh, Elif there and Patrick and Batula, um, who we didn't get a chance to say hello to earlier. Um, and Sandy and Alvaro. Yes, exactly, and those guys. Um, it wouldn't be the same without you, so thanks for joining us every week. Um, I've got one more thing to flag before we do say goodbye, and that is that you still have two weeks left to nominate your friends and your colleagues 
for iGaming Idol, uh, the prestigious award show that we run towards the end of each year. Um, so don't hesitate, scan the QR code, get your nominations in. Connor, you need to nominate me, I think. You haven't done that yet. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I'll nominate you for the Hall of Fame. Yes, there's lots of categories uh, that you can nominate colleagues for pretty much every function within a business. Um, so if you've got a colleague you want to celebrate, absolutely follow that QR code, go and nominate them. Uh, it's one of the probably, well, of course, I would say, and I agree, it's the premier best award show in the industry anywhere. We have a super rigorous process. Um, and so it's really something to be celebrated, uh, getting nominated for one of these awards and getting on the shortlist. So, yes, I would encourage everyone to go and do that. Yep. And most importantly, it's an excuse to dress up, Connie. You forgot that. Yes, well, you know me and uh, tuxedos, Jake. I Once or twice a year, I become uh, like a pint-sized James Bond for the evening. So uh, something to look forward to there in November. Exactly. Um, thank you, obviously, also to our sponsors today, Place and Interactive and Hub 88. And thank you mostly to you, Connor, for joining me once again. Uh, I'll see you at the same time next week. Yes, the pleasure has been all mine. Thanks, <laughs> Jake. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching.